This morning we continue our series through the book of Philippians called Check Yourself. In the first week, in Philippians 1, we really looked at how Paul called and affirmed and he set partnership as a benchmark or a check for the church. And then last week, Dottie journeyed us through Philippians 2 to look at how Paul really encouraged the church to keep their attitude in check. Now, this series, Check Yourself, has been a four-week Sunday morning series through the book of Philippians, which encourages us to check ourselves to make sure that we find ourselves postured in love and knowledge and depth with our gospel fluency. letter to the church in Philippians is written to a gospel-driven community, and it has many benchmarks and checks for us to learn from, to be better postured as individuals, but also as a church community ourselves. We desire to check ourselves against these things before we wreck ourselves, right? We check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. A few years ago, I was driving with my friend Eric. And Eric, he's kind of a goofy guy, and he lives in a highly populated, but largely uncivilized area of central Virginia. Think about that for a minute. Highly populated, but largely uncivilized. We had set our GPS to an address that wasn't very far away from his house, but we quickly realized that my GPS had no idea where we were going. There had been obviously too many changes in the area since my last map update, that we found roads that never existed before, roads that used to exist but now were closed down, large wealthy housing developments that littered this once complete rural terrain, and every turn we heard recalculating, turn around when possible. Now Eric, being the goofy guy that he is, he assured me that this was no problem, that he knew where he was, and Eric's never good with directions. But he knew we were at. And more importantly, he told me he knew a shortcut. Suddenly, we started finding ourselves on roads that were barely paved. And roads from far being large enough for a 15-passenger van and trailer that we nicknamed Big Red. At Eric's invitation, I turned left onto a completely dirt road. And though I found this odd, it wasn't really uncommon in the area, so I rolled with it. Suddenly we passed a broken down car that looked like it probably had broken down 10 years prior. Then we passed a a kind of trailer set back in the woods that you could see had caught fire at one time, and there were things littered throughout the woods, and it wasn't a double wide, trust me, this was very very, uh, old and run down. And then, as we started to go down this dirt road even more, we started to pass this pile of toilets and washing machines that have been collected uh, seemingly for the past 20 years. I knew that this was looking more and more like trouble. However, Eric assured me that he just needed to reorient himself for a minute, and we would find our way out of this. Now, I know that the average Lancaster County has an unhealthy fear of the city. Well, we don't go there. Well, my fear has nothing to do with the city. The city has always been fine for me. My fear is always of true backwoods Appalachia rednecks, and it's probably because of stories and experiences like this. So after passing the vintage pile of toilets and the like, which I actually had to get out and look at, I saw a sign hanging in a tree. Turn around now. 
no trespassing. Well, there was no way I could turn around a 15-passenger van that was pulling a trailer. And we'd already been on this dirt road for over a mile. I was not good enough at backing up a trailer to go straight that long. Our only hope was to continue on. More and more signs appeared. Private property, no trespassing. Now, these weren't those nice store-bought signs that were orange and black. These were like scraps of wood that probably came from the burned-out trailer and had spray painting on them. We continued down the road. Then I came to the worst sign. Turn around. Trespassers will be shot. Eric gave an awful chuckle. I probably gave him a choice few of my words. He was still sure we'd find our way out of this wooded path. Well, we definitely found our way out of it. As we came into this clearing, this opening, sat this collective house uh, grouping and barns of these run-down Appalachia-style barns and houses with metal roofs that seemed to be held up by toothpicks. I was sure, certain that I had seen a moonshine still smoking in the front yard, and right as I point it out to Eric, all of a sudden I make eye contact with an elderly woman on a rocking chair holding a shotgun. It only took one shot ringing out. So I drove on their property and traveled at an unhealthy speed out of there. I'm not sure that I was very comfortable, and Eric was laughing the whole time. I don't know if out of awkwardness or he was really enjoying the moment, but I was sure that these redneck snipers or a free man society would emerge from the woods at any moment and let loose wrath and fury on us. As, as fun of a story it is to tell, I probably could have saved myself some trouble, maybe a pair of pants, if I would have oriented myself with a map before traveling with Eric. Or if I allowed the GPS to actually reorient our journey back to roads it did know. Eric could have saved us trouble if he would have reoriented himself before we were on a dead-end street. Though we obviously made it out, the, the takeaway from that has always been for me to know where you're going. Know if you're on the right path or not, because you never know when you're going to run into a moonshine community with shotguns, right? In the story of Philippians, it's very much the same way. And this morning, we're going to look at the story of Philippians 3 as a way of reorienting ourselves to making sure that we are on the right path and that we are not going to end up on some dirt road. This morning, we're going to look at Philippians 3 in the third chapter. And we'll be spending our time about reorientation from Philippians 3.10 through 21. You'll find the text on the overhead screen. If you can't see it, I also invite you to follow along in your Bible or in the few Bibles in front of you. As we read through Philippians 3, 10 through 21, pay attention to what stands out to you. Pay attention to where you find the Scriptures kind of grabbing you or poking you or provoking you a little deeper. Philippians 3, 10 through 21. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Now, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, 
I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take, should, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that God too will make that clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those that live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship in he- is in heaven. And we eagerly await from a sa- for a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we'll be like his glorious body. Now there's a few things in this short passage that I think we can use as benchmarks and checks to make sure that we find ourselves reoriented to the right road, both as individuals but also as a corporate church community. What I love about this passage is really the language Paul uses, and it's really this sense of experiential language, this sense of experiencing things. Listen to some of it. I want to know. I want to become. I want to take hold. I press on to win the prize. Let us live up to what we have attained. Paul finds himself confessing and looking for this deeper experience of the things of God. He has not arrived. He's looking for a deeper learning. He doesn't want head knowledge. He longs for physical experience. Touch, taste, grasp, hold. He looks to encourage the church in Philippi with these focuses or experiences as well. There's so much gold in this passage, but this morning I want to look at just some of the benchmarks and checks that Paul is oriented towards himself and also trying to reorient the church of Philippi towards. Now for me, to do that, we have to look at one of the key verses in this passage. And for me, that comes from Philippians 10 through 11. Listen to this passage again. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, you can really see the language that Paul longs to experience things here. He says, I want to know. And there are two things that Paul wants to know. He wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. And he wants to know participation in Jesus' sufferings. What benchmarks and checks Paul gives to this Philippian church. Now, the word for know there is is one of the most interesting things. And the word know there means to experience absolutely or to experience wholly, to know without question. It includes the ideas of feeling, having, knowing, perceiving, resolving, speaking, being sure, and fully understanding. So when Paul says, I want to know Christ, he has to know the power of his resurrection. He's saying, I want to experience it absolutely. I don't just want to know it. I don't just want to know it. I want to touch it. I want to hold it. I want to grab it. Now, what is it that Paul's trying to 
hold, touch, taste. Paul is trying to hold before him the power of the resurrection. Now, the word for resurrection there is where we normally get hung up. And automatically, when we see the word resurrection, by default, we automatically think about heaven. And we read the word for resurrection in that light, misunderstanding completely what Paul is actually saying in that passage. In fact, the word for resurrection here has nothing to do with heaven. Has nothing to do with receiving heaven when we die. The word there is duomas. Say it with me. Duomas. It's a powerful word, a violent word of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Dumas literally means miraculous power. So why we translate it as resurrection rather than miracle in this passage has much to do to say more about the translator than it does Paul's intent. This word is used throughout the scriptures, especially in the gospels, in reference to miracles and miracle workers. In fact, Paul talks to all of his churches a lot about this idea. Listen to how he writes to the church in Rome proper, right? So here, the church of Philippi is Rome minor. Now Rome proper gets this. And if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit or of him, God, who raised Jesus from the dead, is living in you, right? He constantly is talking to his churches about the dumas, the power of God. The power of the resurrection is that Jesus' miraculous power was released in it, in the resurrection of Christ, for everyone and everyone. It's not something we know, it's something we know, we experience, we touch. And that's what Paul is communicating in this passage. I want to know Christ. I want to experience the power of his resurrection, miraculous power. Now, it's not the only thing that Paul says he wants to experience in his passage. He also wants to participate in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, I really doubt that benchmark or check of the faith is any on our list of things we long to experience in our faith journey. Sure, we'd like to experience the miraculous, but how many of us have on our list, I can't wait to experience the sufferings of Christ. But Paul, the way he writes this, uses contagious language. It shows his emotion in the original text. He is as excited and driven to this as you and I might be to go to our favorite place of vacation or to have a chance to ride a new ride at Hershey Park. Paul's like, yes, the sufferings of Christ, that's what I want, woo! That's a benchmark for me, you guys should want that too. In fact, the word that Paul uses to say that he wants to take part of that, to be participating in that, is the same word we saw in week one. Partnership. Philippians 1 was all about partnership. The word that Paul uses there, I want to take and have participation in Christ's sufferings, is the word koinia. It means partnership. What was week one all about? Partnership. We saw Paul use his same word when he said, In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day on to now. Paul's literally saying that the way that he's experienced partnership in the church, the way they've worked together for the kingdom, the way that they've worked together to support each other, 
He wants to feel that same partnership in Christ's sufferings. Anybody have that on their Christmas list right now? Paul is saying he wants partnership. He wants part. He wants to experience not only the miraculous Dumas power, this breaking in of the kingdom, but he also wants to experience the sufferings of Christ. Now, most of us want more comfort, not more pain. Most of us want healing, not more hurt. So far, this is what we see Paul actually saying. I want to know Christ. He has to experience the power of his miraculous power, and take part in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I want to know Christ. He has to experience the power of his miraculous power. Take part in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Yet there's actually one last concept there that Paul talks about. He says, and though somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Yet somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now here, when Paul says resurrection, guess what? He literally means resurrection. He literally means being raised from the dead. It is through obtaining these other two benchmarks, the miraculous power and partnering in the sufferings of Christ, that Paul says he can obtain heaven at the end of the race. Paul challenges his church that I want to know Christ, yes, to experience the power of his miraculous power, and take part in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow achieving life after death as a result. Now Paul's paradigm of thinking in this passage is to run a race, to discover these things, to press on, to really know them, to really take hold of them, to develop and understand and discover the fullness of miraculous power and share in the suffering of Christ. And as a result of those things, he will find eternal life. Now, it's much different than our normal paradigm of thinking. That we recite, as long as you believe and pray, you will receive eternal life. The idea of sharing in Christ's suffering, the pains, the the turmoil, the brokenness, is not usually something we list as a possible benefit of following Jesus. Hey, guys. You know why you should follow Jesus? Because you get to share in his sufferings. I mean, aren't you ready to jump? I mean, aren't you ready to become a Christian now? He does this, though. He changes their paradigm way of thinking to begin to address the check marks and the benchmarks of what it means to grow as a Christian. We as Mennonites may have a lot to learn about the Holy Spirit, but we have a great heritage of understanding what is called the suffering of Christ. In fact, our confession of faith confesses to believe in the three baptisms. What are they? Three baptisms are we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Our confession of faith says that we believe in the baptism of water. We just practiced that here in October. And then we also believe in a baptism of the blood or of suffering. In fact, our confession of faith in a Mennonite perspective says this. Jesus understood the giving of his life through the shedding of his blood for others as a baptism. He also spoke about his disciples' suffering and death as a baptism. Those who accept water baptism commit themselves to 
follow Jesus in giving their lives for others, in loving their enemies, and in renouncing violence, even when it means their own suffering or death. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. However, knowing it on paper and knowing it with our lives is much different. The tension between belief and action is exactly what Paul is writing about as he addresses this church of followers of Jesus in Philippi. He wants them to not know. He wants them to experience and yearn to experience the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, but also what happens in suffering and the power of what happens there. Now, after this powerful idea, Paul goes on to say, not that I've obtained all of this or already have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ took a hold of me. He transparently owns that he hasn't obtained, achieved, or reached the fullness of any of this, of any of it. And none of us have reached the fullness of any of, none of, of it yet because none of us are in heaven yet. <coughs> Excuse me. However, he is pressing on to physically take hold, to grasp, to grab, to touch, to taste these things. Paul portrays to the church that it's dangerous to ever think you are arrived. To ever think you are mature. In fact, early on in his passage, he plays around with the idea of perfect. And the word that he uses for perfect there shows this complete picture. And then later on he says, but not that I'm, and he uses that same word, have already obtained this. It's, it's a word of perfection. Not that I myself are perfect. Right? Paul's admitting that even he, this guy who's experienced the Holy Spirit in great ways, has traveled the country, winning people for Christ, planted churches. He's not obtained all of it. And it takes a lot to obtain all of it. Judas sat at the feet of Jesus. He had the greatest teacher. He had the greatest church community. And he still didn't grasp all of it. Paul says that he wants to transparently push on to achieve and reach these things. We holistically discover the fullness of this experience of miraculous power and the suffering of Christ. Lastly, Paul goes on to encourage them to make sure that they're completely reoriented, make sure they're on the right road, they're not on a dirt road, heading to a danger zone. Paul warns them, those other people's minds, those people that aren't thinking like us, right? Those people that aren't wanting Dumas and people that aren't wanting to experience sufferings, those people, they're, they're thinking about earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables us to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. In this passage, Paul uses a word that is similar to commonwealth or colony instead of citizenship. We translate it as citizenship, but the word there is actually a political word that was used to describe Rome. So what's Paul saying? Our citizenship is not like the citizenship of those people that think they've arrived, those people that aren't thinking like us. Those people are ruled by their stomachs, their heads, their experiences. No, our colony, our commonwealth, isn't Rome. Our commonwealth, our colony is in heaven. And therefore, our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore, the things that we are focused on is not comfort, is not success, is not 
these worldly ways of measuring ourselves. It is to experience dumas and to experience suffering. The Moody Commentary remarks about Paul's words in this passage. The Christian's primary allegiance is to no particular country or government or news source or television. It's no place for nationalistic arrogance since our citizenship is in heaven. Now the benchmarks that we see in this passage that teach us to be postured in love, to be postured in knowledge and depth with our gospel fluency are these four things. We are to press on to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our life and in our community life. We are called to press on and to partner with the sufferings of Christ, not yield ourselves to our comforts or expectations. We are never to think that we have arrived, that we've matured, that we've reached perfection. We are always to journey on for more experiences with Christ. And we need to remember our orientation. We are focused on our citizenship in heaven, not our comfort in the world, and not our citizenship in the empire. Now, as the worship team comes forward to close us out, please consider as you look at these benchmarks or these checks, where you are feeling a nudge from the Lord to grow in. Is it in more power of the Holy Spirit? Is it in to experience more suffering? Is it to realize that you aren't all there and you need to learn more? Is it that you need to let go of your your kingdom of the world citizenship a little bit more? As a church that is committed to journeying together, I would love to find ways to resource you and grow with you in whatever you are sensing the Lord is inviting you to. And please, if you feel that you are to seek after growth in one of those areas to seek me out afterwards.